So I'm a little anxious about tonight's talk because it's a relatively, it is a new talk for me and it's really grows out of a lot of what's been going on in my mind and heart for the last year and a half. I hope it holds together and forgive me if it doesn't uh, and we'll see where we end up by the end of the evening. So I want to start with a quote from a woman whose name is Barbara Brown Taylor. And she says, whatever language you prefer, meaning whatever religious language you prefer, the apparent truth is that we belong to a web of creation in which nothing, absolutely nothing, is inconsequential. We belong to a web of creation in which nothing, absolutely nothing, is inconsequential. So much of what has been going on for me in the last several years, actually, is really wanting to look at as big a picture as I can possibly allow myself to look at. And, you know, maybe some of that is because I'm at that point in my life where it really begins to seem like it's pretty short. And it's gone by really, really fast. And, of course... You know, I read the obits most days and I think, hmm, I don't know how much time I have left. You know, it might not be too much. And of course, I've also shrunk a little, so I'm definitely smaller than I was. Um, and so it's all, you know, I'm feeling kind of small and I'm really wanting to have this sense of of bigness. And, and wanting to ponder, you know, what does it mean to be part of such a vast cosmos that we inhabit with billions, billions of galaxies. And to think that not that long ago we thought the ga our galaxy was the universe. We thought it was the whole thing. And now, you know, and ever since, especially since the Hubble Space Telescope, we know that it's way, way, way bigger than that. And so there are these billions of galaxies and trillions of stars and solar systems all over the place. So that's what happens when you go out. But interestingly enough, of course, when you go in, when you go down and start going into the body, you know, smaller and smaller and smaller, we discover that it also keeps unfolding itself and we're finding, you know, s smaller bits of the body that we didn't know were there. And then you start getting into molecules and atoms and particles and and it keeps going down and down and down. So who knows how long it's um, going to, you know, how, how much more there is to unfold. And as I pondered this, I've also been thinking about the fact that all of the world's major religions, all of them, emerged during the Axial Age. So the Buddha came during that time and Jesus, and Confucius, and Lao Tzu, and Muhammad. And at that time, pretty much everyone, with the possible exception of some of the Arabs, had the notion that the earth was flat. Oh, the earth was absolutely flat. And they had sort of a three-tier idea of cosmology. You had heaven of some sort up here, and then you had the earth here, and you know what was down there. It wasn't good. 
And so it was pretty simple. And one, one scholar that I've been reading, um, he says, nearly all formal religious traditions embody imperial sentiment, a derogatory view of creation, and a distinctly male patriarchal basis. Bias, I'm sorry. Male patriarchal bias. That's including Buddhism, I'm afraid. So the sense of how utterly patriarchal it is. And so since this is science has made all of these discoveries, what's often been happening, I think, and makes sense that it would be true that our thinking and our inner life hasn't expanded in quite the same way. So, as you all know, I live on the big island of Hawaii. So it's the one with the volcano that you've been seeing pictures of. And um, I actually live on top of that volcano, about three miles away from the summit, right at the edge of the national park. So Hawaii is a pretty interesting place geologically. So I'm gonna, well, you're going to have a geology. You can pretend I'm in my park ranger mode when I wear my little brown uniform, and which I have. I mean, I do this. Next Thursday afternoon, you'll, you'll see me there. And I tell people about how the Hawaiian Islands were formed. So here's the deal. We know that the Earth is covered with tectonic plates, right? And they move around, and sometimes you know they bump into each other, and they make a continent, and sometimes they pull apart, and there's an ocean. And all over the Earth, there are hot spots. And a hot spot is where the magma that's down in the mantle of the Earth makes its way through the crust. And it's just always in the same place. So there's one under Yellowstone, there's one in the Canary Islands, and there's one under the Hawaiian Islands. And the Hawaiian island chain isn't just the island chain that you think you know, but it actually goes from the big island and actually from a volcano that's forming on the floor of the ocean a little bit south of the big island, all the way up north to the Aleutian Islands. And at the Aleutian Islands, the Pacific plate dives under the North American plate. So as the plate moves along, and it moves about two to three inches a year, an interesting fact is that's about as fast as your fingernails grow. <laughs> so the island, it moves over the hot spot, and the lava comes up and starts building a volcano under the ocean, and then ultimately comes up to the surface, and it builds and builds and builds, but after a while, the plate moves off the hot spot, and then the wind and the ocean begin to take their toll, and the island kind of sinks down and down. So the islands way up by the um, Aleutians are not islands anymore. They're underwater seamounts. They're about 80 million years old. So in 80 million years, which seems like a long time, my island, where I live, will be underwater and about to dive under the North American plate. Okay. So, um, you know, so... We've had this volcano, and it's been erupting, and um, many things have disappeared. 700 homes, parts of the island that were beloved places, you know, warm ponds and tide pools that were big enough to snorkel in, and beautiful, beautiful gardens, and they're gone. 
forever. Very interesting. And about probably about a square mile of new land has been added. So the island is bigger now than it was when I was last here at the beginning of May. So you can't live in Hawaii without having some idea that this earth is, this earth of ours, this theoretically seemed like it always was, solid and stable and kind of more permanent than most things. And you realize it's not. It's not. It's neither solid nor stable, and it's being created all of the time. Different things are happening. The continents move around, as I said. Mountains rise, they fall. Oceans come where there weren't any before. And of course, especially with the climate change, we can all expect geographical changes even you know, even here in the United States, like New Orleans, for example, probably isn't going to be with us too very much longer because it will be underwater. So, you know, as, as we, we understand the geology of the planet and we um, look as we can now out into space, the flat Earth thing doesn't really hold. There are people who believe it. I had a um, airport transport person from taking me from here to the San Francisco one time who explained to me quite happily that the earth really is flat and it's a NASA conspiracy that all these pictures show up. But um, I think most of us understand that this really is round and a very tiny speck and a very big part of space. So what's really good news is that a lot of this conversation happens pretty easily in the Buddhist world. But what's also true is that there are other, other people and other practices who are also beginning to say, hmm, I think we have to rethink things a little bit. And one author I read recently, a wonderful guy whose Irish name is Diarmud Omerchu. I would love to meet somebody with a name like that. And he says, um, he says, God has been incarnating God's self ever since the Big Bang and is completely interwoven in all of creation. So you can imagine that theologians who think like that are rattling a few cages. Um, and, but I think it sits pretty well here that this creation process that we're part of is going on. So we, Homo sapiens, inhabit this changing planet floating around in space, vast, vast space. And we have these bodies. We have these bodies, which, as we learned this week, these bodies are really busy doing stuff all, I mean, even as we sit here, isn't it? Amazing, you know, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, then your bone, bone marrow, kidney, and you start thinking about everything that's just going on while we're just sitting around having a conversation. And the blood is being hustled around from place to place, and that nice fruit dessert that we had tonight is busy being sorted out and detoxified and separated into its various components and sent off to the proper storage facilities. 
and the cells, different cells are cooperating. As they, there's, there's research now that shows that the cells actually have a kind of cooperation as they do all of this work. And then, as I think Bob pointed out, you know, there's all these other things. I mean, there's the bacteria, we know about them. But there's other little organisms who are hanging out in here, you know, and they're going about their lives. I looked up um, eyelash mites today. They're pretty creepy looking creatures that live in your eyelashes. And I have them and you have them. We all have them. So we are exactly as Bob said. We are a biome. We are a huge civilization of beings who are not us. They are not us. And we know about what we call us. You know, we have an entire new body every seven years. I love to think of like a conveyor belt. This is one of my favorite images. And you can, you know, all the bags of groceries come along and then you eat them. And they're you for a while, right? You know that blueberry dessert? It's you now, right? But it's not going to stay you very long. And after a while, you know what happens to it and then it goes out the other way. And so, you know, the groceries and then you and then everything that's leaving. It's, wait, you know, so what's, what's me? And so we see that the sense of self and permanent being begins to dissolve and to see that we are indeed impermanent. So I was quite taken with that poem that Bob read last night and I thought I'd read it again because it fits with what I'm saying. It's one, the one that's called It Is Enough. It goes, To know that the atoms of my body will remain, to think of them rising through the roots of a great oak, to live in tree leaves, branches, twigs, perhaps to feed the crimson peony, the blue iris, the broccoli, or rest on water, freeze and thaw with the seasons. Some atoms might become a bit of fluff on the wing of a chickadee to feel the breeze, know the support of air, and some might drift up and up into space. Stardust returning from whence it came. It is enough to know that as long as there is a universe, I am part of it. So this is a very interesting thing, isn't it? We know that 14 billion years ago, most cosmologists think that there was an event that usually gets called the Big Bang, and that in an instant, in a vast explosion of energy, what we know as our cosmos began. And that over millions and millions and millions of years, that vast explosion settled down Gradually, there was star formation and galaxy formation and solar planets, and the universe as we now know it began to emerge. And on our planet, at least, after a lot longer time, because this planet's a little more than five billion years old, life began to emerge. And as that life emerged, things went along and in fits and starts with a lot of failures and dead ends and backing up, as 
different things happened. Asteroids came along and all of that. All of this life moved and changed and ultimately human beings have emerged. And so far as I know, we're still being fine-tuned, you know. So this notion that we are stardust is actually true. You know, that we are made of the same stu stuff as everything in the universe, everything. And it's temporarily held together in this body. So body, body is a word, right? It's a concept. It's a concept for what's going on in this process that we're studying this week. So it's the same sort of thing as like when you look up in the sky and you see the Big Dipper, right? Bunch of, what is it, seven stars, I think. And you go, oh, look, the Big Dipper. But you know there's no Big Dipper, right? If you get in your little spaceship and trundle up there, they're not even close to each other, those stars. And there aren't any stars that are really close to each other. But they're not close to each other. Same thing with the Pleiades. Same thing with Orion, you know? It's, it's, it looks, somebody's mind kind of connected the dots and said, oh, that's what that is. Or you could think how, you know, there's a place in most streams, there are lots of places actually, where a rock has fallen in or a log or something and the water swirls around it, right? And it creates an eddy, right? Oh, look, you know, look at the eddy in the stream. But can you actually find the eddy? Does it exist, really? If you move the rock or the log, it's gone, you know? So in such a way is what we call the body, the self. And in Buddhist lists, and for those of you who are new, one of the, new, one of the handy things about Buddhism is there are lots and lots of lists. It kind of helps to sort it out some, sometimes. So there's one called the aggregates. And the aggregates are, sometimes they're called the baskets. Um, sometimes they're just um, groups. And they're, when they come together, we say, okay, that's what is a person. And so there are five of them. They're form, so form, and feeling in the sense of Vedana, like we talked about the feeling tone of your experience, and perception and mental formations and consciousness. So I'm just going to talk about them a little bit so you have a sense of this. So form is, is, is the stuff of what we are made of, the, the more or less or not so solid stuff. So the form of a body, the form of a table, the form of a lamp. That's the form. And so that's one piece of this. And there's the feeling tone of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neither. And then there's perception. And so perception is that process where you look at something and you know what it is. You go, oh, you know, a bell or a window or the ceiling or a person. And so you perceive it. Mental formations, I think we're all fairly familiar with lots of mental formations this week, right? And you begin to see how the mind begins to kick in and create a lot of thinking around 
anything that happens. And then consciousness, I think of consciousness as being kind of the flavor, sometimes more as the ground of consciousness. So it might be more open or it might be more rigid, that kind of thing. It's not a, a specific um, a specific piece of the consciousness. So all of these things, when they come together, they create a sense of identity. And the monks, you know, the monks have this ferocious chant that they do just about every day. And they often do it in English, sometimes in Pali, but they chant, form is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self. Mental formations are not self. Consciousness is not self. It's like, get it, you know? None of this stuff is a self that you can hold on to and make some permanent, solid, separate thing. And we think you're probably beginning to get the idea, if you didn't already have it, that there isn't much of anything that's permanent and solid and separate. So we create a sense of identity, right? And some of you might think, you're your thoughts. That's not an uncommon thing. I am my thoughts, you know. I'm my feelings. I'm my body. I'm my experiences. I have these stories about me. You know, I'm a teacher, or I'm a man, or I'm a woman, or I'm American, or Chinese, or African, or I'm gay, or I'm straight. And we have all these other things that we attach to make our identity. And we often create a really solid concept of me. And in the time, our world of time and space, that is useful. You know, it's nice that you know whose shoes are whose when you go out there, and which dormitory to go to, and which bed. And tomorrow when you go home, you'll go to the right place, I hope. And might not, but you know, we hope. And so that's handy to have that. But it's also so limiting. Because really, you're an eddy. You're an eddy in this stream of whatever it is that's happening. I'm not sure I can even put a name to it. This temporary manifestation of matter and energy. Now just suppose, just suppose we began to realize, and probably all of you know this, I'm probably preaching to the choir tonight, really, you know. But when I say we, let's just assume I mean the big we, you know, out there. Just suppose that we began to realize that this body, this thing we call a person, is really stardust, and that everybody everybody is, and that we are stardust that have made its way, made all these particles have made their way through the last 14 billion years. That's pretty, it's almost creepy to think about that, you know, that this has been happening ever since the Big Bang, shifting, reforming, coming together, splitting apart until this particular moment in time when it manifests as you, you, and me, and all of us. You know, this body with all of its parts 
coming together after 14 billion years. It's like, how did it, how did it, what? How does it know to do that? It's very mysterious. I don't have any answers for those questions. And not only that, Bob made that lovely comment last night, quoted somebody who said, we are beings that know how to transform the energy of the stars and to use it in our own being. But what if, what if somewhere in deep in the smallest, smallest particle that exists in your being, there's the tiniest bit of memory that at one point we were all one. There was only one. What if that's true? It is true. I don't, I don't know if, it's certainly not memory like we think of memory, but it is true. And that all of this division that we make, all of this division, all of this separation, it's not true because we're much more connected than that. One of the books I read, I just wanted to tell you the title because I so love it. It's called The Unbearable Wholeness of Being. Isn't that a wonderful title? The Unbearable Wholeness of Being. You and the trees and the rocks and the mosquitoes and the volcanoes. It goes on and on and on. Every flavor of person that we have walking around on this planet. Every flavor. All of the colors, all of the genders, all really incredibly interconnected. All of our livers do pretty much the same thing if we treat them right, you know. It's really so interesting to get that. And what I think it really points to is how, you know, we are born relational because we come out of this context and we yearn for that kind of connection. We, since we yearn to go back, to yearn to be part of that whole that includes the human family as well as all the trees and flowers and rivers and streams. And it's useful. I came across a quote from Joanna Macy, who's a wonderful, wonderful teacher, sometimes here at Spirit Rock. Although she's getting quite old now. I don't know whether she's teaching much anymore. She's talking about how she met um, John Seed, who is the director of the Rainforest Information Center in Australia. And she says, one day I asked him, you talk about the struggle against the lumber companies and politicians to save the remaining forests. How do you deal with the despair? He replied, I try to remember that it's not me, John Seed, trying to protect the rainforest. Rather, I'm part of the rainforest protecting itself. I am that part of the rainforest recently emerged into human thinking. You know, maybe we're all part of those oak trees recently emerged into human thinking. The turkeys have a ways to go, but they're not. But they are part of it too. They are part of it too. 
So there's all this separation that we create, right? And all this wanting things to be different from the way that they are. And so separation and attachment and ignorance, these are the root causes of suffering for us on this planet and in this life. And we all know when we solidify that sense of self, when it becomes all about me, or when we're constantly saying I this and I that and I the other thing, or we say mine, suffering happens. Suffering happens. It happens to us and it happens to those around us. And of course, we continue to do this with our communities and our groups. You know, this group has an identity, right? And this group is way better than that group or this church is better than that church or it's better to be a Buddhist than to be a Hindu or to be a Sufi is better than to be a Christian. You know, it goes on and on and on. And our world is being torn apart by tribalism. We are being torn apart. Racial tribalism, religious tribalism, national tribalism. It's too many to name. You know, you could go on and on and on. And when we are tribal, we make everyone else other. Everyone else is other. And it becomes an oppositional world of tension and conflict and anger and war with big corporations who have a very solid identity who are trampling pretty much everything in their path. The only thing that matters is acquisition and more of whatever it is that you want. And the inner world matters hardly at all. And, dear friends, the group on the progressive side of the aisle does it just as much as the group on the other side of the aisle. We are all caught in this pattern. This is hugely important now to begin to see this. It's hugely important. It's why I teach. It's why all of us teach. It's why this center exists to try to step past those limits so that the hearts and minds of everyone can open. We must move past it. One image I've liked a lot and used a lot in my teaching over the years is the Aikido image. And some of you probably know Aikido way better than I because I'm not a practitioner. But in what my limited knowledge is, one of the things I love is the sense that when the two opposing forces come together, what you're supposed to do is you meet the opposing force and move it so that everyone ends up in a safe place. There is no one person and the other person. It's the whole system moving to where it's safe. It's exactly what we need to do. Now, there's a place for me that's kind of hopeful because one of the things I've been also thinking about lately is evolution has not stopped. You may think you are the apex and the end, but I don't think so. You know, so just like those islands at the end of Hawaii, you know, they've moved off to the hot spot and Nihau and Kauai are gradually eroding away and, you know, they'll be sinking under the ocean and not 
too distant future, not while you're on vacation there, but, you know, not too far ahead. The earth continues to change and evolve, and so does, you know, all the life form species die out, unfortunately. We have a lot of that in the islands. And mutations occur and new species emerge. And I think it's really interesting to begin to consider if evolution is continuing to unfold, what do we as conscious beings contribute to this? You know, right now, right now, as you sit here, as I talk to you, this is evolution happening. It's an amazing thing to begin to see this. It's, it's opening up right in front of us. We often think of impermanence as things disappearing back there. You know, it's falling off the edge all the time. Breakfast is gone. Your dog died last week. These, they all disappear into the past. But impermanence is just as true coming at you. You know, it's constantly changing. And if that's true, if that's true, and we have the ability to wake up, what does that mean for the evolutionary process of this planet? We are conscious beings. We are. You wouldn't be here if you weren't at least somewhat conscious, nor would I. And we have the ability to wake wake up. So it's really important that you try to feel into that, you know, and that you be with it and you begin to make choices with your lives so they, the same way that you make choices with your body, you know, and to make choices about how you are with your body and how you are with other bodies and how you are with plants and mountains and oceans and animals. Your choices are part of that evolutionary process. And they can't not be part. So if you don't choose, you know, not to choose is to choose, as that saying goes. So as you act or don't act, Karma is the reverberation of your actions. That's what the Buddha taught. And he said, when we act, it reverberates and it goes on out and affects other people over sometimes long, long, long periods of time. I mean, the Buddha was teaching 2,600 years ago and we are still sitting here talking about him. So that's, you know, that's a lot of reverberation. So, and he said, the, your karma is actually the only thing you own. You know, the ability to act and have it reverberate, that's what you own. We, and you are the inheritors of your own actions. And it's also true that future generations of human beings, of animals, of plants, of the planet, are also the inheritors of our actions. We're not separate. There is no solid self. It's exactly in line with what the Buddha teaches. And he teaches that when we get attached to this self, individual or tribal, we are creating suffering. And he teaches that everything is in process, in flux, and constantly changing. So creation, you can call it that, it's continuing, it's mysterious and sacred and wonderful as it opens up as, as time and space unfold. And really, I want to ask you, what would it take for us to realize that we're unfinished? 
we're unfinished, that we are still being formed, that everything around us is unfinished and is still being formed. Waking up to this, I think, will change our lives, our lives and the lives of those around us. This is the call of all awakened beings. It's the call of the Buddha. Can we acknowledge our part in creation, in evolution, and take responsibility and wake up? So I want to end with another reading from Joanna, because Joanna, Joanna likes to talk about the great turning. She's very hopeful, I think. And so she's talking about, is it possible for us to turn this kind of disastrous path that we're on. So she says, now harvesting these gains, we are ready to return. The third movement begins. Having gained distance and sophistication of perception, we can turn and recognize who we have been all along. Now it can dawn on us. We are our world knowing itself. We are our world knowing itself. We can relinquish our separateness. We can come home again and participate in our world in a richer, more responsible, poignantly beautiful way than before, than we did in our infancy. I'm glad I don't have anything more to say because I think I'd probably cry. So let's just sit and breathe for a minute. Just stay as you are and just be relaxed and be happily relaxed on the edge of evolution. So thank you very, very much for your presence and for your practice. You actually have a nice, luxurious 45 minutes for walking before coming in for the last sitting. So please enjoy. The moon is nearly full. So.